Hello, everybody. Welcome to Grand Rounds. It's my uh, privilege today to introduce a rising star, though I'm not quite sure if he's rising or if he's already risen. Um, Todd has been with us now since 2012. He came as assistant professor. He was originally got his PhD at um, Albany, University of Albany, did a postdoc and then research faculty uh, at Vanderbilt with Carlos Artiega. And if anybody knows Carlos, you can know that Todd learned something about doing clinical trials. So since he came here, he's initiated, catalyzed at least uh, 10 different clinical trials in the breast cancer program as uh, the scientific director of the, the comprehensive breast cancer program. So he's really had a, a major contribution to this cancer center, um, both in his own research and translating it to the clinic. Um, so I do have to do this, the, the, these things which says, um, uh, Dr. Miller has financial interests in the past 12 months. He has grants research support from Takeda Pharmaceutical and Novartis Farm, he's a consultant for Novartis Farm. Brent Berwin has to then go take a look and see if his slides are okay, and Brent says there's no conflict of interest from reviewing uh, the slides. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. He's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this. And for CME credit, please use the activity. How many people here need CME credits? Okay, well, you then get the code outside the room. You guys probably know how to do that better than, than I do. So, with that as a very brief introduction, so that Todd gets lots of time to give his talk, I give you Todd. Thank you, Alan. So today, I thought I'd talk to you about some new work that we're doing in the lab. There's not a lot in here that is old data for me. I put in some background data from others, um, but a new concept, um, which hopefully I can sell you on and the reviewers as well of my grants. Um, the vast majority of it is the preliminary data was generated by Riley Hampshire in my lab, so thank you, Riley. Uh, I have nothing to disclose in relation to this talk. <clears throat> so within breast cancer, we have three, uh, four main subtypes uh, dictated by estrogen receptor alpha, ER, or HER2, and also progesterone receptor, which I don't show because PR usually tracks with ER. Um, and so if you're triple negative, you're ERPR and HER2 negative. Uh, we don't have targeted therapies for that subtype, but they're in a minority. The majority are the ER positive and HER2 negative subtype, uh, for which patients are treated with anti-estrogens. And being the majority, they're responsible for the most cases and also approximately half of the deaths. Um, it's the slower growing version, has a longer latency, but it's still the biggest clinical problem. <clears throat> We treat ER-positive breast cancer with anti-estrogens that neutralize ER function, ER being a transcription factor. So ER normally works by binding estrogens, um, estrone or estradiol, E2 is the more potent, and induces dimerization, phosphorylation, binding to DNA, and drives transcription or represses transcription. It actually represses more genes than it induces, uh, which adds up to a cell proliferation and survival program. Tamoxifen being the oldest and most commonly used anti-estrogen induces the opposite where it induces the, the binding of transcriptional co-repressors and inhibits transcription or antagonizes uh, estrogen action. 
aromatase inhibitors, which came on the scene in the 90s and are now um, the preferred antiestrogen of choice for postmenopausal patients, will work by inhibiting the enzyme aromatase, which blocks the aromatization or conversion of androgens to estrogens, and therefore is considered estrogen deprivation therapy. So there are three different aromatase inhibitors that are uh, routinely used in the clinic, and tamoxifen that are the standard adjuvant therapies. And I, I like to think of the disease as to how, in terms of how it's managed clinically, what am I actually looking at, or what are we studying? So in patients with early stage breast cancer that is ear positive and HER2 negative, the early stage being stage one to three, they have no distant metastasis. Uh, these are the majority of patients that we see in uh, first world countries that have good screening programs. We find smaller tumors and they're usually non-metastatic. Those patients are treated with surgery and a lot of them will get uh, chemotherapy and or radiation therapy. The chemotherapy can either be administered before or after surgery, being neoadjuvant or adjuvant, respectively. And the patient's then called disease-free um, by clinical measures because we, they have no evidence of disease. They're then treated with adjuvant anti-estrogen therapy in the disease-free setting, being tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors. The standard was five years. Um, there's been debate about whether that time frame should be extended to 10 years or for life um, in some patients who are at high risk for recurrence. And there is uh, recent clinical data in the past couple of years that there is a modest, modest benefit, meaning a modest um, increase in recurrence-free survival if you were to stay on um, aromatase inhibitors for more than five years. But there's also going to be side effects, so it depends on the patient as to whether they can tolerate therapy and stay on. About one-third of these patients uh, will develop recurrent disease. At that point, they are called advanced or metastatic. We use the terms interchangeably because advanced usually advanced means everything, but advanced usually is locally advanced um, or locally recurrent um, or, or distantly metastatic. So this phase where they're disease-free before they have recurrence and clinically evident disease is called clinical dormancy. Once a patient recurs, they're usually treated with another antiestrogen with or without targeted therapies that we now have available, um, being Afinitor and Ibrantz are mTOR, TORC1, and CDK4-6 inhibitors respectively, always in combination with an antiestrogen backbone. Um, once the patient comes back with metastatic disease, even uh, initial metastatic disease, it's virtually never cured. They will um, then be treated with when it, the cancer will, they usually respond to an antiestrogen with their dot targeted therapy, but then they're going to progress eventually. Uh, treat, switch to another antiestrogen with or without targeted therapy and or chemo. Um, you get responsive progression for several years, and eventually the vast majority of patients succumb to breast cancer related symptoms. So, in this metastatic setting, is where new drugs are tested and they're tested based on preclinical efficacy against established ER-positive breast tumors, usually that's done in mice. So the drug has an effect against the established measurable tumors in mice, and then we move it into t testing in the metastatic setting in patients after we do tox studies in other uh, species, of course. So 
there must be clinically dormant disease in here because they had a tumor, we cut it out with surgery, and then we gave them adjuvant antiestrogen therapy, chemo, radiation, and then cancer comes back. So there's got to be clinically dormant cancer cells hiding out in the body somewhere that we just can't find. And when I say we can't find, I mean with standard routine um, clinical methods. There are clinical trials where they've done bone marrow aspirates on some very generous volunteers <laughs> and found that they can find clinically dormant cancer cells, which you call micrometastases or disseminated tumor cells, depending on which camp you want to fall into. They're actually different definitions. Micromets usually being something that has maybe an establishment, beginning of establishment of vasculature and such, whereas disseminated tumor cells might just be cells. Um, so the way they find these in bone marrow aspirates is they will do a, they take the bone marrow aspirate and they um, put the cells on a slide by a cytospin or such, and then stain them with usually markers against um, epithelial cells like cytokeratins. And this turned out a lot smaller than I would have liked, but this is a meta-analysis of trials that looked at bone marrow aspirates from cancer patients, from breast cancer patients or healthy patients. Um, and they're on the order of several hundred patients in every study. And they can find um, micrometastases from breast cancer cells in bone marrow aspirates in about 20 to 30% of patients, which is this row. And down here is the follow-up. The median follow-up is on the order of two to four years in most of these studies. So after, being, after having surgical removal of the cancer and your adjuvant chemo and radiation and then being on uh, adjuvant anti-estrogen therapy if you're ER positive, a large number of these patients still have detectable residual disease in the bone marrow. This is from that same study. All it shows, I mean, again, it's small, but all it shows is that if you had a larger tumor at the time of surgery or you had mo more, uh, more nodes that were positive or a cancer more nodes, uh, which would be considered sort of locally metastatic, or you had higher grade, you are more likely to have residual disease in the bone marrow. Makes sense. You get more aggressive disease. Um, they also separated it based on receptor status. And if they are receptor positive, which in this case means ER or HER2 or PR, they can again, again have bone marrow micromets. They only did this to show that it's not just triple negatives um, that have bone marrow micromets. When they separate this out into a multivariate analysis, the bone marrow micrometastasis was still predictive of increased likelihood of recurrence, distant metastasis, death overall, or breast cancer-specific death. This is another study, which is smaller, but they limited it to ER-positive patients, and I can tell that based on the fact that they were all treated with tamoxifen as their adjuvant therapy. DDFS is distant disease-free survival, so distant metastasis, and BCLSS is breast cancer-specific survival. And you can see a difference whether they had positive bone marrow micrometastases or not. And again, they did multivariate analysis out of the fact, and it was still predictive of increased risk of distant recurrence and survival. So. <clears throat> This is what the timeline looks like, where we have clinical dormancy over here, and we have new drugs being tested for metastatic disease. And I draw a line here because these are really managed differently in the clinic. Uh, adjuvant therapies do very differently from treating metastatic disease, where you can actually measure the tumor. 
And depending on whether the tumor is starting to grow, you're going to switch drugs and you're going to call that progression. Whereas here, you're kind of flying blind and you're treating patients who are disease-free, don't know who's going to recur. We have different ways that we can predict based on the primary tumor who's at highest risk for recurrence, but we still really don't know. So the argument about adjuvant therapy has always been uh, a lot of patients, in fact, it could be the majority of patients, don't need it, but it is beneficial overall, so we treat um, the majority of patients. So they test the drug in patients with metastatic disease, and the drug, if successful, gets approved because it is able to prevent disease progression, meaning it inhibits the growth of tumors that they could have measured. Then there's rationale, which I put quotes because there is no rationale, and this is the whole problem. They, when the drug gets approved here and it's effective against measurable tumors, they then move it into the adjuvant setting. And they treat patients in this setting as adjuvant therapy after they had surgery, and their endpoint is recurrence. So they're trying to use their drug now to prevent the outgrowth of clinically dormant cancer cells. And th there's no, I mean, literally, this happens all the time, and there's no rationale for doing it. So what I propose we insert is some preclinical evidence of drug efficacy in the adjuvant setting to target clinically dormant cancer cells, which the biology of which is not that well understood. <clears throat> so a case example that just came out is Pavlosicco, the CDGF46 inhibitor, also got Ibrance. The drug is all the rage in ER positive breast cancer. It works great. So in mice that had MCS17 grafts, Subcutaneously, uh, this is work that I did years ago, I treated them with Pavlosicobar vehicle and it gave tumor stasis as well. Other people showed the same thing and then they moved in clinical trials. And this is the phase two trial that essentially led to the breakthrough designation of Pavlosicobar with letrozole, the antiestrogen for ear positive breast cancer. So it looks good. So based on this, should we treat patients in the adjuvant setting who have no evidence of disease? No, but that's what they're doing. So Pavlo's approved for first-line metastatic breast cancer. There's no rationale, and there's four trials going on that are in, with Pavlo in the adjuvant setting. So again, this happens all the time. Uh-oh. <laughs> Somebody bootlegged the windows? Wow. That's a... <laughs> so, um, I think that scenarios like that of getting drugs approved for metastatic disease when you can measure the tumors and you're trying to inhibit growth of tumors and then moving them to the adjuvant setting is part of the problem with drug development. And this, this is one of several reviews that I found that shows that oncology is really not doing well with drug development. It actually has the lowest drug approval rating compared to all the other major, major disease types. So we need to do a better job of drug development. So why should we test drugs, anti, what I call anti-tumor drugs, that work against established tumors in models of clinical dormancy? Well, the first is biology, the microenvironment of the established tumors, meaning they have vasculature, stroma, extracellular matrix, inflammation, pressure, hypoxia, et cetera, is going to differ substantially from the microenvironment that you find with dormant cancer cells. And the other great subject here is history. Uh, despite showing efficacy against 
established tumors in the metastatic setting, some drugs that when they're moved into the adjuvant setting don't uh, increase recurrence to survival when given adjuvantly or neoadjuvantly. And this list gets long, um, but I pulled some just up here to show that these are examples, and of course no one writes reviews about this, so you have to really dig because no one likes to talk about the negative, but these are drugs that were shown to be effective in the metastatic setting, and then when they put them in an adjuvant or neoadjuvant study, they didn't work to inhibit recurrence or prevent uh, disease recurrence. So we started to develop models of clinical dormancy of ER positive breast cancer in my lab because that's what we work on. So we put MCF7 cells into overactomized mice. We use overactomy as a way to further decrease the circulating estrogen levels in the mice. It's a mimic of aromatase inhibitor therapy that you would get in patients. So they're estrogen-depleted mice. <clears throat> and if you put in the, the MCF7 cells at baseline, you have to give an estrogen, estrogen supplementation or estradiol supplementation, which is E2. We usually give it in the form of a subcutaneous pellet. If you give estradiol, tumors will grow. We do this all the time, which are in the black lines. But if you don't give an estradiol pellet, nothing grows. So after 10, this is actually a failed experiment that my former postdoc boy managed to salvage. So we decided to put in an estrogen pellet after 10 weeks and see what happened. And when you put in estradiol at that time point, tumors grow out. If you don't, they don't. So essentially this says that the MCS7 cells will survive this extended period of estrogen deprivation in the mouse, and you put in estrogen later and they grow. So we labeled cells with luciferase so that we can follow them. <clears throat> And you can still find them several months later. And I think Riley's now gone out past three months to show that we can still find cells hanging out long term. If you image them over time, we find that you can't image mice with, with visible or palpable tumors because the luciferase is just off the charts saturating for the machine. But if you remove the estrogen pellet, the tumors will regress. It takes about two weeks for the tumors to completely regress to be non-palpable. We can still image them long term. And I'm going to include diagrams like this in the upper left because some of the treatment schemes get a little complicated. But what this shows is tumors will grow on, with estradiol treatment. When you give estrogen deprivation, you remove the estradiol pellet, tumors crash and they go to zero within about two weeks. <clears throat> so after 82 days of estrogen deprivation out here, uh, Riley resected the, the tumor beds, which it's handy to have luciferase there because we, we know where the tumor bed is, so we have some direction. We're not just dissecting blind. We take up the residual tumor beds, and by H&E, uh, my pathologist colleague, John Marotti, says we see involutional type changes, decreased tumor cellularity, increased fibrosis, and extracellular deposition of basement membrane. Sounds good. We do cas 7 immunohistochemistry to look at cell proliferation. And at zero days, which is when the tumors were in estradiol, everything's CASC7 positive. The tumors are growing and proliferating just fine. After 82 days, that goes down to almost nil, and you can see that quantified over time here. Right, we also did tunnel to look at apoptosis, and you see a slight increase in apoptosis after a couple of days of estrogen deprivation, which makes sense because we know the tumors shrink, so you must, there must be some cell death. But by 82 days, everything that was going to die is already dead, and there's very few apoptotic cells left. Something else that's interesting is when you stain for ER alpha, the at baseline tumors are very ER positive, which makes sense because they're MCF7 tumors, 
but by 82 days, a lot of the ER signal is low. Um, we think this is, this is in line with the finding that people have already reported that breast cancer stem cells tend to have low or no ER, depending on who you ask. So we, I'll get to it later, but we do show that there's a large stem-like component to these dormant uh, residual tumors or tumor beds, and that's probably why they have low ER levels. Uh, here. So one way to look for breast cancer stem cells, and there are several markers, but one is to do CD44 or CD24 dual stain. So right, we dissected out tumors, tumors and tumor beds at day 0 and day 87, dissociated them into a single cell suspension, and stained them with antibodies against CD44-24, and analyzed by photocytometry. What we're looking for for the stem-like component are CD20, CD44 high, 24 low, which are in this quadrant. And that proportion is significantly increased after, in this case, 87 days of estrogen deprivation. So then we're stem-like. We also did nanostring analysis with our pan cancer panel, which has about 770 cancer-related genes, using RNA extracted from FFPE tumors from these uh, different time points. We chose 0, 3, and 82 days because 82 would be our long-term clinical dormant tumors. Three days is the short-term estrogen-deprived tumors, and zero is baseline where they have estradiol. The reason is we wanted to be able to distinguish between genes that are just going to be acutely affected by estrogen withdrawal versus genes that are actually different in dormant tumors. So this genes that are overlapping here are going to be the ones that are probably just estrogen-driven. When you withdraw estradiol, they change. We're mainly focused on what is unique about the dormant tumor cells. And we find over here that the gene for AMPK alpha 2, or the RNA, was upregulated um, in dormant tumors compared to baseline, but not after only three days. This is another way of looking at all the nanostring data together, where the y-axis is the change at three days versus baseline, the x-axis is the change in dormant cells at 82 days versus baseline, and AMPK alpha 2 falls here on the axis, where there's a significant change in dormant tumors versus baseline, but not at three days versus baseline. So what does AMPK do? And this is the obligatory complex diagram. Uh, AMPK is sort of the center of metabolism. The way it works on a molecular level is it's phosphorylated by LKB1. AMPK alpha is actually, alpha 2 is one of two possible catalytic subunits in mammalian cells, being alpha 1 and alpha 2. There are also beta and gamma regulatory subunits, and there could be a couple of those as well. You need to have the uh, trimer of alpha, beta, and gamma subunits to have a functional AMPK molecule. It is a sensor for AMP to ATP levels, and when, a when there is a higher AMP to ATP ratio, AMPK will be prone to an active conformation whereby it can be phosphorylated by LKV1, phospho-AMPK is active, and it will do its stuff. And it has several substrates, um, a couple of which we talk about here, ULK1, which we look at as a marker. That will actually trigger autophagy. And it can also phosphor, uh, inhibitory phosphorylation on Raptor. So it can, its main known function is to inhibit uh, mTORC1, where Raptor is part of that mTORC1 complex. It can also um, feed into the level of um, tuber and humbartan to inhibit TORC1. So, in addition to looking at just the nanostream data, we wanted to validate that this actually happens. 
So Ryu did immunized chemistry for AMPK alpha two in tumors harvested after zero harvested after zero six or ninety days of estrogen withdrawal, and we see AMPK alpha two levels go up over time. And she also looked at phospho HCC at serine seventy nine, which is a direct substrate of AMPK. I'd say AMPK because there's alpha one and alpha two, and we don't know which one at this time is contributing to the phenotype. So we have to just look at PN AMPK. This was not an easy way to, not an easy histocore, but what we see is that there is a shift towards increased positivity or strength of staining of phospho ACC uh, over time in the, over time on estrogen withdrawal or estrogen deprivation, where the clinically dormant tumor cells have higher phospho ACC than at baseline. We also looked at MCO7 cells in vitro and deprive them of estrogen over time. We do that by taking them from going in 10% FBS to 10% charcoal-stripped dextran-treated FBS or DCC-FBS, which is depleted of most hormones, including estrogen. And right, we found, oddly, that after 60 days of estrogen deprivation, you see AMPK alpha-2 go up, just as happened in the tumors, whereas in LTED cells, which is another model in the lab, and LTED are long-term estrogen-deprived. There are model of aromatase inhibitor-resistant disease. The LTED cells have regained the ability to grow in the absence of hormones, including estrogen. So what this says is that at 60 days, when the cells are super stressed and barely hanging on, they upregulate AMPK alpha-2. But when they've regained the ability to grow, and they're now LTD, and they've been without estrogen for over a year, that phenotype may be lost. So there may be something about them needing to reach a state of a certain stress threshold, uh, being withdrawn for estrogen to upregulate AMPK. So we found AMPK, and that immediately led us to want to look at metformin, because metformin is known to be an AMPK activator that is routinely used clinically, and there's a lot of debate about how to use metformin in cancer patients or at all. So metformin is a routine treatment for type 2 diabetes. And the reason it's being looked at in cancer is because there is a lot of epidemiologic evidence that suggests that it may have anti-cancer effects. So this is an old meta-analysis where they looked at a whole bunch of cancer types almost 80,000 patients. And of the patients who were DT, DM2 means um, diabetes mellitus type 2, so type 2 diabetes. If they were um, treated with metformin, they had increased probability of survival. It was actually better than being non-diabetic. So it looks awesome. And when they split this out, look at just breast cancer, in this case from their Vanderbilt cohort of this same study, 3,000 patients, uh, the legend's the same. You actually do really well if you're on metformin and you had type 2 diabetes. Um, you almost look better than being non-diabetic, whereas if you were on insulin only or other drugs to control your diabetes, you don't fare nearly as well. So I tried, I'll try to discuss the mechanism of action of metformin. The real answer is no one really knows but there are a dozen or so mechanisms out there that are postulated, and some are front runners, but it probably does other stuff. It has an interesting history um, being from the French high which is the source of 
a chemical called galgene, which is a of the biguanide class. So I put this in because it, it turns out that metformin is actually chemically similar and sort of was derived from the molecule galgene, and this herb was used in the middle as far back as the Middle Ages to control uh, what was in fact diabetes. They just didn't know it. Um, called it sweet urine disease and such. Um, so it has quite an old history. Um, so we're actually not that clever in discovering metformin. Um, but metformin was first um, put together in the 1920s, and strangely, it was forgotten because insulin came about, and insulin was used for diabetes, and it was a wonder drug. And then metformin was resurrected in the 50s, and so on, and you can actually use metformin and insulin. Uh, its main mechanism of action to deal with type 2 diabetes is it's thought to decrease liver gluconeogenesis to decrease fasting blood sugar um, in patients. But it can also decrease pancreatic insulin secretion, and it increases glucose uptake by mainly muscle cells, but of all cells in the body, peripheral tissues, which will decrease blood glucose levels. So metformin can actually induce the association of AMPK alpha with the beta gamma subunits, and that provides a substrate for LKB1 phosphorylation. So therefore, metformin leads to or induces the activation of AMPK. Metformin also, there's pretty good data that says that it inhibits mitochondrial complex 1, which is AMPK independent, of course, and that will decrease glucose utilization and ATP production in cells. So... Um, there can be several mechanisms of action. Uh, Riley put this comprehensive slide together for us, um, but the metformin is being investigated in prospective clinical trials um, a lot. I mean, there I think there are something like over 200 trials in cancer uh, with metformin now, and this is just a, a sampling of what's being tested in breast cancer. So I put this, uh, the pharmacokinetic information in um, for Alan because he would ask about concentration. And in a study that tested 18 healthy adults, they gave 500 milligrams of metformin twice a day. And that's kind of in the range of standard dosing. Standard dosing is 1,000 to 3,000 milligrams a day, either split up into two or three pills a day. They get eight micromolar in plasma. The half-life is about six hours, so it's thought to be cleared, but there is data that says it can, can accumulate in tissues, and that's where it gets really fuzzy as to what that means and how it happens. Separate study, different doses, found about the same thing. The objective of the doses, um, and even after um, looking at, even after several doses, they look at steady state on the highest dose, which is uh, 2.5 grams a day, they're still only getting about eight micromolar plasma. <clears throat> so we did a mini PK experiment in mice because I'll show you mouse data later on tumors, and we wanted to know where we were as far as dose. Um, I bring this up because, well, I'll say in a second. So we treat the mice with metformin in the drinking water because it's easy and we're lazy. And we get 5 milligrams a day, which is about 0.1 mix per cake per day mice. And you get 4.8 micromolar. It's an average of 6 mice. So another study actually spent a lot of time looking at PK. They got a paper in Cell Metabolism this year out of metformin PK. And they used five times the dose in drinking water for 15 days, and they looked at plasma and subcutaneous tumors in mice. And they found they got a little higher than we did. They got about 20 to 30 micromolar, but it's still not 
um, in the millimolar range that we'll get to. They also tried injecting metformin IP just to see what you would get. Um, they injected a lot, 125 meters per kick per day. And they took the plasma and tumors out at 30 minutes after the last injection on day 15. And the levels in plasma are quite high, but not in tumor. So when they give it once a day, apparently it's probably ra rapidly cleared and it never accumulates in tumor. They take the tumors out after 15 days, and they show that phospho AMPK alpha is elevated whether you give it in the water or IP, so it does work to activate AMPK in tumors. Now we go back to in vitro. On the order of millimolar, they have to use one millimolar to activate AMPK in cells in a dish. So there's something clearly very different about what you're doing in a dish with metformin versus what's happening in vivo in living systems. And this matters because people are using up to 50 millimolar metformin in a dish. And we know those concentrations are so far out, of, they're like a thousandfold above what you're going to get in patients, um, that people have questioned for a long time the relevance of the findings in vitro of metformin. But something that we don't yet understand about how the drug works or how it even gets into cells says that we need to use more in vitro than in vivo. And this is what they happen when they measure the concentration in the tissue culture media that they had added versus what got into cells. They get about 10 to 12% of drug actually entering cells from what they put into the media. So we opted to go with one millimolar to start out. And one millimolar metformin didn't do anything to MCF7 cells growing at 10% FBS. And Riley also tried um, putting them in low glucose containing medium because that is another way to stress the cells and activate AMPK. Because they have less glucose, they're going to upregulate their, they're going to have increased AMP levels, decreased ATP production, and activate AMPK. In 10% DCC FBS, they're very low hormones and low estrogen. And the cells, if you just put them in DCC FBS, don't really like that. But if you get them low glucose or you get them some metformin, they actually grew better or they die less, depending on who you want to ask. I would say they die less. They probably didn't grow. <laughs> um, so this suggests that there's some protective effect to possibly activating AMPK when you are under stress conditions of being without estrogen. And of course, we also did the Western bot to show that low glucose activates AMPK is indicated by increased phospholase C and phospholase ULK. And the formative of the same, although 10 millimolar worked better than one. Okay. So in 10% DCC FBS, you put MCS7 cells, they don't really grow. I would say they die less. And this is a, I think, a five day assay. If you give them metformin, they survived a little bit better. We just showed that. But now we showed it in two other, two other ear positive breast cancer cell lines. But when you give them estradiol at the same time, which should make them grow very well, and it does, that's in red, they're growing just fine when you add estradiol back. If you now put them in the red submetformin, they crash. So we have no idea what's happening here as to why, why is metformin protective when they're in a stress situation without estrogen. But then when you get the estrogen back where they should be happy, they are all of a sudden super sensitized to metformin. And that happened to the, all three cell lines. So maybe metformin is just dirty. Maybe it does other stuff. So we got an equally dirty drug called compound C, which is an AMPK inhibitor. So it's supposed to be the opposite of metformin. And 
right? You put compound C on cells in with cells with no um, with F, with hormone depleted medium, compound C does not make, make some crash. So it could be that compound C is just bleach, right? But when you have them in 10% FBS, when they have hormones there, compound C doesn't really do anything. So it says that when the cells are hormone deprived, they are super dependent on AMPK. And when you activate it, they survive better. When you inhibit it, they crash. I still don't have a great explanation as to why in the presence of estradiol, um, APK activation is causing such a problem. And I'll, I'll get to some hand-waving about the mechanism for that in a bit. Um, but compound C did decrease phospho-ACC, so it was inhibiting APK as we would have liked. Um, we also used genetics, did siRNA to knock down AMPK alpha-1 and 2 subunits, because again, we don't actually know which one is the important one. We think it's alpha-2, but we don't know. Um, and what that showed is in the presence of 10% FBS, which are the pink bars, there's no difference, meaning AMPK knockdown didn't seem to matter. But when you knock down AMPK in, the, in DCC FBS with no hormones, they were super sensitized. So knockdown is analogous to compound C driven. So why is this happening? Well, we don't yet know, and that's Riley's thesis project. Um, but one, a couple of um, hypotheses, however, that metformin decreases glucose utilization in cancer cells, right? It's going to inhibit mitochondrial complex one. Estrogen is doing the opposite. It's going to increase glucose utilization. So there may be an issue of mixed messages, which is triggering cell death, where one is telling the cell to grow, the other one is telling the cell to stop. Another um, maybe more elegant mechanism, if it worked out, would be that under trust conditions that activate AMBK, which we've been doing, it's been shown that knockdown of P27, which is a uh, cell cycle inhibitor, a CDK inhibitor, can induce apoptosis. Again, that's mixed messages. If you're knocking down P27, this is supposed to be cycling, but you're giving them stress, so that kills them. Estrogen is known to induce domination P27. So it could be that giving estrogen primes them to be responsive to AMPK activation. I also mentioned since we looked at ULK as a substrate of AMPK. Um, at day 82, after the, we're back to tumors. At day 82 of estrogen deprivation, you do see increased fossil ULK, which is indicative of autophagy. You also see a decrease in P62 levels and P62 puncta, which is another marker that they're undergoing autophagy. Um, and the immuno scores over here for those. So we wanted to model this in mice, uh, which isn't the easiest thing in the world. Um, but we wanted to know if we're seeing increased AMPK alpha-2 levels and AMPK activation in dormant cells, do they need it? Does, does increasing AMPK activation during dormancy actually promote their survival, or is it just a correlate? So we did the experiment where we gave mice estradiol and they grew tumors. Then we withdrew estrogen, estrogen deprivation, and tumor shrank. And we treated the mice plus or minus metformin during that time, and that went on for 90 days. So we're what we're doing here is we're modeling um, metfor adjuvant metformin concurrent with adjuvant estrogen deprivation therapy. So we look at this part of the curve where the tumors are regressing. And in mice that were on metformin, the tumors regressed slower. So 
even though estrogen deprivation induces regression, the metformin slowed down the regression. So it's promoting the survival of these cells, we think. Then, right, we then put in estradiol <clears throat> pellets again to make the tumors grow out so that we could look at outgrowth. And if you had metformin pretreatment, you grew out faster. So all these were, we let these go to zero, or we only took the ones that were at zero at, at, uh, for this experiment, put them over here. And everything starting at zero, the ones that had metformin during adjuvant estrogen deprivation therapy um, gave rise to tumors faster. So theoretically, there's more dormant tumor cells hanging out here because you had them on metformin treatment. Um, I also put this in here because I'm still puzzled by how this happens, but you recall that those dormant tumors were ER low, and yet when we give estradiol, they still give rise to tumors just as well as they would have at baseline. So clearly there's something about this population that makes them still able to use ER just as effectively as this population. <clears throat> so then we did the other experiment, which this experiment has been done many times and also provides some of the clinical rationale for using metformin as an anti-cancer therapy, is we wanted to look at whether if we switch metformin to this phase, are we going to prevent tumor outgrowth? So we give estrogen deprivation, tumors shrink, you put them back on estradiol, tumors grow. If we give them metformin, what happens here, and this is what everyone else has reported, is metformin will slow the outgrowth of tumors. But I just said it also slowed the regression of the tumors in the prior slide. So it depends when you're giving it. So what we can find from this is that the clinically dormant ER-positive breast cancer cells can survive long-term estrogen dep deprivation in vivo. They have AMPK upregulation and activation. They engage AMPK to survive the estrogen deprivation, which is supported by the use of metformin in that, that first mouse experiment. And they also show enrichment for cancer stem cells. So if you get metformin concurrent with adjuvant anti-estrogen therapy, which is what the clinical trials are currently doing, uh, that looks like it's a bad idea because it's promoting the survival of dormant cells, which you can argue that maybe it's preventing the outgrowth of tumors at the same time. Yeah, that's true. But it's also promoting residual disease. And whether it's good, that's going to put patients at higher risk for recurrence long-term no one will know, and I would argue no one's going to know that in the time frame of some of these trials. We're not going to know until 10 or 15 years down the road. If you want to use metformin to treat active disease or measurable disease, overt cancers, that's, that may be a good idea because that's what we find, that's what everyone else has reported, that when you can measure a tumor, metformin slows it down. So some of the things that we have ongoing or um, planned are to test adjuvant metformin versus compound C. Remember, metformin is an AMPK activator. Compound C is an AMPK inhibitor. So it would be estrogen deprivation plus or minus one of those drugs in MC7 and CR751 breast tumor cells, or breast tumors in mice. And right, we just learned as of now that since metformin decreases blood insulin, and that may decrease hunger, you may decrease food consumption at the same time. So we probably have to measure food consumption in all these experiments to make sure the mice are eating the same. We also separately need to do genetic knockdown of AMPK alpha-1 and 2, which we're trying to design docs-inducible constructs to do this to determine whether metformin actually acts through AMPK because metformin may be doing other stuff. And I suspect it probably is doing other stuff. It's probably actually inhibiting mitochondrial complex one as well. So 
we may only see a partial reversal of the effects when we knock down AMPK alpha-1 and 2, and may only partially block the effects in that format. Other experiments that we want to do that, um, some that we haven't started because they take a long time, are of interest to me is to determine the lifespan of clinically dormant ER positive tumor cells. Why is this interesting? Um, it's interesting because there, there are data where patients were put on, with ER positive breast tumors, were put on neoadjuvant letrozole and a Rowentase inhibitor for a long time. I don't know how they did this study, but they were put on for up to three years. And they, they biopsied them, um, either they biopsied them usually at three months and then at surgery. But up to three years after, they could still find residual tumor cells there. So the tumor wasn't completely gone, but there were still tumor cells there, which means I know it's not starting from a micromet, it was starting from an established tumor, but that tumor regressed and those cells still survived that long. So how long do these cells actually hang out? And the part of the problem with this experiment also is that we have to do it in mice, and I'm not comfortable going much more than a year in a mouse for a reliable experiment. Um, we're also working on doing RNA-seq from these tumors, the dormant tumors and the baseline tumors, because we did nanostring analysis, but that was a very narrow focus of 800 or so genes. By doing RNA-seq, we get much more information to identify targetable pathways. And we also want to determine whether ER in an estrogen-independent manner is still possibly active in the dormant tumor cells, which would give rationale for targeting estrogen-independent ER with an ER down regulator like fulvestron. We also have to look at whether the clinical dormant cancer cells have altered glucose metabolism, which of course has implications for targeting AMPK and using metformin and compound C. And we're also working on developing micrometastatic models of clinical dormant ER positive breast cancer. Currently, we've been doing subcutaneous and orthotopic models. We also want to look at micrometastatic models in sites that are associated with ER-positive breast cancer, namely liver, lung, and bone. So I'd like to acknowledge uh, Riley, who did the vast majority of this work. The project was started by Loy, a former postdoc in my lab, and also Kevin Shi, uh, and the Mary Kay Foundation for funding a two-year pilot grant to get this work going, and also uh, pilot funding from the Cancer Center to get work on dormancy started. And I'd be happy to take questions. Al. Oh, terrific. Uh, very, very nicely laid out. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's fascinating where you're finding the in vivo system was giving you the work, was giving you an answer that you couldn't get in the in vitro. Is one of the problems that uh, I assume that your in vitro system or the systems that they used are the usual cell culture conditions in which you're culturing in air and so you're using chronically stressed cells. Yep. So it might be interesting to go back especially with fresh cells so that they haven't been adapted to this terrible environment and to see whether or not you could get some in vitro models that fit the in vivo if you, if you grew them under conditions that are more compatible with what they see in So, hypoxia and nutrient deprived yeah. type of environment. Okay. 
Okay, you should try it. Thank you. Mary? Thank you. Really interesting, and I'm struggling with this whole definition of clinically dormant because it sounds like they're, you know, they, they require estrogen deprivation, there's increased AMPK, there's um, increased autophagy, which sounds to me like they're not dormant. And so, we have to use that because the, the term biologically dormant is very specific, and we can never say that something is, but we can never say cancer cells are biologically dormant because you, you can't prove any of that. So, we have to say clinically dormant, which means no measurable disease. Right, but it seems like that actually creates the rationale for adjuvant therapy. We were trying to say there was no rationale for it. You don't, well, yes and no. You don't know, the problem is you don't know what you're treating. And we know that there are, we know there are micromets. We know there are dormant cancer cells in the body. But how many of them give rise to a tumor? Right? So the vast majority of what you're treating doesn't. And the majority, possibly the majority of patients aren't going to give rise to a met either. Is that, is that fair? So I don't. I don't think you're wrong. Um, we'll talk how fine. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong either. Gilbert. Uh, great talk. Um, just a couple of questions for your dormant model where you remove estrogen. And it seems like because later on they respond to estrogen, and perhaps the estrogen receptor is being downregulated at the protein level, perhaps, because there's no estrogen. And there are mechanisms like that, basic mechanisms that the receptors now regulate. It's like a negative loop. There. It's usually the opposite. Huh? The the loops for ER that are that are known are the opposite, where estradiol will induce activation and then degradation of ER. So I don't know of. Usually, if you estrogen deprive them, ER will go up because the cell has more around than it wants to be activated. So I don't know. So why do they still respond to estrogen? I don't know. But apparently the low ER is sufficient to make them grow. Whether, and what we haven't looked at is what, and I think Riley's thing is supermanent, is if you, once you have dormant tumors, dormant tumor cells there, if you give them estrogen, what grows out right away? In other words, are those ER negative cells giving, or ER low cells giving rise to the strongly ER positive cells? Like a differentiation process mm -hmm. or something. Can right. I just Yeah. See, like what you're studying right now is dormant cells in the tumor site subcutaneous correct? And so one can argue that the microenvironment can dictate different gene expression profiles, different genes will be unregulated, irregulated. Sure. And so usually in breast cancer patients that are ER positive, the bone, as you showed us, there's also might be liver or brain. And so have you, um, are you undergoing any studies that aim to see if dormant cells in these metastatic sites will be different from, because in the clinic there are no dormant cells in the primary tumor. We know we have to do that eventually. One separate time. that could be different? <laughs> um, it has been shown that they will have a different gene expression profile. That's been shown with other breast cancer models, if there are different sites. Um, but they are more similar to each other than they are to other tumors of that site. Does that make sense? Yes. So patients' lung mets and bone met will be more similar to each other than a lung and bone met from other patients. So they're different, but they're not that different. Well, 
I was wondering in your, in your dormant cells, are they diffused through the tissue or you're looking at concentrated areas of tissue? I was wondering about your RNA seq things like that you're doing. If it's, if it's sort of the dormant cells are rare, so does that make it very hard to analyze the population? Not yet, but I, I think that actually can be guided by the model. So we're using immunodeficient mice. If we'd use immunocompetent mice, which are trying to make that model, um, we may see different uh, non-cancer cell populations invading the dormant tumor. But we haven't run into the issue of do we have to macro dissect and such. We haven't run into that issue because most of the, the non-cancer cell material in that dormant tumor bed is non-cellular. It's fibrous stroma, yeah, or not stromal cells, but um, extracellular matrix. Yeah. In the same line of thought of Hilbert, uh, and the ER may be down, but what about on the receptor, for example, GPR-30? Oh, man. Um, we will not be looking at non-genomic ER signaling. <laughs> We're not getting that. Um, I know what you're saying. There could be ER-beta, there could be estrogen-related receptors that are also working. Um, that would be tested in the experiment I described at the end, which we wanted to do our RNA-seq first, but we want to do an experiment where we'll treat with full restaurant, which is ER down regulator, which should also inhibit the ligand independent activity of ER. And if we see that full restaurant has an effect on the dormant cells, then that will tell us that it's still ER alpha. Well, it could also be ER beta, ER alpha beta, but when you say GPR-30, you're talking about membrane-initiated ER, membrane-initiated estrogen signaling by non-ER mechanisms. And but ER, the, ER, ER binds to GPR-30. Maybe. No, it's maybe. MCF7 is GPR-30. There is not strong evidence that non-nuclear ER signaling is clinically important. There's not. There's evidence from in vitro systems. And there's some mouse experiments. There is not a clinical sample showing that GPR may be related to that. But no one has shown that the nuclear, no one's shown that membrane initiated membrane initiated cycling happens or is clinically important. I mean, uh, yeah, you can never say never, right? Yeah. Um, I don't plan to look at that. <laughs> because Just because I've, I've, I've seen it myself in some systems in vitro, it is not reproducible, and everyone questions the clinical relevance of it. So it's not that it can't happen, but no one's been able to show that it's really important. Bill? Um. This observation that the co-administration of growth-promoting estrogen uh, signal and the uh, catabolic metformin signal caused the cell to crash, the cell to crash. As you mentioned, these are, this is kind of a dissonant situation. So you know, it looks like a metabolic catastrophe is what a lot of people would call this. And I just wonder, you've tested the impact of metformin in the context of other growth-promoting signals to see if this is a, gen a generic No, it's a good uh, idea. Thing because it, it could be that this one could be exploded if somebody was brave enough to give a growth-promoting substance 
in the presence of the pro-catabolic influence of metformin. It's a good, no, it's a good idea, good idea to try, but I wonder if the clinical argument would be that there already is a growth-promoting signal in the tumor, because you have a tumor. And that's why metformin may work there. No, it, it could be. Um, yeah, but, yeah, we should try that out, both in, in the different scenarios, in the stress scenario and the non-stress scenario. It's a good idea. Question. Thank you, Todd. Thanks. That's the last question, I think. Thank you.